Early one morning, a young girl comes home from a sleepover to find her family murdered. Her mom and oldest brother in a bloody mess. Her sister missing. Police were immediately called, but to this day, haven't been able to untangle this mystery. What happened in Cabin 28? Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. This is Brad, your tour guide, your buddy, your pal. So, today we are going to talk about the murders in Cabin 28. This case was suggested to us by our listener Misty, so shout out to her for this episode. The Cabin 28 murders are also known as the Ketty murders. It's an unsolved quadruple homicide from 1981 out of Kettle, California, a resort town near Sierra Nevada. The victims in this case are Sue Sharp, her son John Sharp, who is 15, her daughter Tina Sharp, who is 12, and John's buddy Dana Wingate, who is 17. Sue's daughter Sheila, who is 14, and her two youngest sons, Rick, who is 10, and Greg, who is 5, as well as their buddy, Justin Eason, who is 12, were not harmed. So we got a lot of players in this case. Again, the mom is Sue, the sons that, that was murdered was John, the daughter was Tina, and John's buddy's name was Dana, and Sheila is the surviving daughter who still continues to fight uh, to figure out what happened to her family. So, this sad tale begins back in the fall of 1980. Sue took her five children and left her home in Connecticut to leave an abusive marriage. They relocated to Northern California where Sue's brother Don was living at the time. They began their new life by renting a cabin at the Kettle Resort in cabin number 28. By April 1981, they had settled into life in California. Susan was known as a quiet woman. John was taking martial arts and, like any good teen, was working part-time with a painting crew to earn a little bit of extra spending money. The kids made many friends and were often coming and going from the house. It also wasn't unusual for their friends to spend the night in the Sharps' cabin. The cabins were located along the edge of the wilderness. It was either a state or a national park that these cabins were located right next to. So these kids got to grow up in a very, I don't know, I would say almost a magical type environment where they could go play in the woods and discover and have all these cabins around where they could feel safe. Sue, on her own, had a hard time supporting such a large family. She received a small stipend for being enrolled in a federal education program. She also got another small check from the Navy as her husband was a veteran. And then she relied on food stamps to help ends meet. But it seems like the family was very happy in their little cabin. On April 11th of 1981, Sue and Sheila drove to Quincy, a nearby community, to pick up John and Dana. Later that afternoon, John and Dana decided to hitchhike back to Quincy to meet with some friends. Of course, something teenagers would do. 
The pair were seen in Quincy by several people that day, and one resident, Donna Williams, claimed to have given the teens a ride across town to visit a friend. Late that afternoon, the two attended a party at the Oakland camp in Quincy. It's unclear exactly what time they returned to Cabin 28, but it looks like it was no later than 1 p.m. Meanwhile, Sheila had made plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in a nearby cabin. She left for her sleepover around 8 o'clock with her sister Tina, but Tina decided to come home around 9.30 to sleep in her own bed. On the morning of April 12, 1981, at around 7.45 a.m., Sheila returned home to discover the dead bodies of her mom, her brother John, and Dana in the living room. Rick, Greg, and Justin were safe in their bedroom. However, Tina was nowhere to be found. Sheila dashed back to the Seabolt's cabin to get help. James Seabolt, the patriarch, returned and said he helped pull the three boys from their bedroom window. Now, these murders were particularly vicious. All three of the victims had been bound with wire and tape at the ankles and the wrists, though under the boys' bindings there was no injury, suggesting that they were bound first before being injured in any way. Sue had been gagged with her own underwear and with a blue bandana on top, which was then secured around her mouth with tape. She was found lying on her side with her throat slashed. She had a deep knife wound in her chest, and the imprint of what would later be determined to be a Daisy BB gun, but on the side of her head. John, too, had his throat slashed, while Dana had suffered multiple head injuries, and it was found that he had been manually strangled. John was left closest to the door on his back. Dana was next to John, laying on his stomach. Now, Sue was next to Dana, but she was partially covered with the blanket from Tina's room, though her nakedness was obvious, as were the injuries that su- suggested she gave one heck of a fight before dying. Three instruments, shall we say, were left behind by the killer or killers, and a neat row on the kitchen table. A steak knife, a butcher's knife, and a claw hammer. And we need to put an asterisk next to the claw hammer because reports really vary. There was either one or two hammers used. If there was two hammers used, then there was a claw hammer found on that table If there was only one hammer used, then it would not have been there. These tools were covered in blood, and the steak knife, in what probably best represents the viciousness of these attacks, was bent in half from the extreme force used to stab. Blood splatter evidence confirmed the assaults took place in the living room, and again, to highlight the brutality involved, blood droplets dotted the ceiling of the living room. There was blood everywhere. The long and short, there was blood everywhere. Now, police found no sign of forced entry. There was no indication of a robbery. It appears, like I said, the bodies had kind of been arranged in the living room, and there was blood throughout most of the cabin. The telephone was off the hook, all the curtains were drawn, and the lights were off. Now, this case has a reputation for being poorly investigated, as we'll learn. First, 
shockingly to me, police didn't believe Sheila when she said she had a sister named Tina who was missing. And this wasn't just for the first few minutes of speaking with Sheila. This went on for hours. It wasn't until they saw a family portrait that had Tina in it and no Tina anywhere around the cabin that they started to believe Sheila. And remember, Sheila's not a toddler, right? I mean, Sheila's a young woman. She's 14. Why would you not believe her? But they didn't. And so for several hours, Tina was not on their radar. No efforts were made to search for her. And we were off to that greatest start in this investigation. Police interviewed all three boys who were in the cabin when the murders occurred but were unharmed. And all three claimed to have been asleep when the event happened. At least at first. See, Justin, the friend, then kind of said that he may have been awake and might have seen two men enter the cabin with John and Dana when they got home. Justin's statement and the investigation around that needs special attention. So we're going to circle back around to that. Based in part on Justin's statement, police identified neighbor and Justin's stepdad, Martin Smart, as a suspect. They also narrowed in on Smart's current house get, house guest, as other people would say, John Bo Bobaday. That's kind of a fun name to say, Bo Bobaday. Both men had criminal histories, but Bo was particularly noteworthy because he had ties to organized crime. He was known to be an enforcer with some operations out of Chicago, I believe. Martin, who's also referred to in a lot of resources as Marty, suffered from PTSD from a stint during the Vietnam War, and he met Bo during a stay at the VA hospital. Martin was seen as a suspect in part because he was known to be a very abusive husband. And Sue actually had been counseling unofficially his wife, Marilyn, to leave Martin. Interestingly, Marilyn did leave Martin the very day after these murders were committed, which police claimed they were never told of during the investigation. Now, for an alibi, Martin claimed that he and Bo went out drinking f- for the night. They asked Susan to join them, but she refused. They stopped at the back door bar where Martin worked as a cook. After a few drinks, Martin became upset about the music being played and had a very angry confrontation with his manager about it. The two left, went home, watched some TV before Martin called back to yell at his manager about the music again. This man was fired up about the music. For some reason, later that night, they both returned back to the bar with the bad music for more drinks. It's unclear what time they returned home, but as we'll see, it seems like it was before 2 a.m. And I'll just digress here and say I love seeing how people really live their lives. I can't imagine getting that upset about music being played as a bar, but maybe I just am not as passionate about music as I should be. Okay, when Martin was questioned by police, he also volunteered that he had a claw hammer that had been stolen in the past week that had gone missing. Mary Lynn told investigators that Martin hated John. She also claims to have provided investigators with a jacket 
which belonged to Tina, that was covered in blood and found in her basement, though the police made no record of this event. Investigators claimed they never could build a case around Martin because he could provide endless clues that led the investigation away from him. Police reached out to neighbors and were provided with a variety of tidbits. One neighbor claimed to have heard Susan in a screaming argument with an unidentified man a few weeks before the murders. Another claimed to have heard a woman scream around 1.30 in the morning when the murders occurred, but couldn't identify where the scream was coming from. One neighbor claimed there was a suspicious green van parked at the Sharps cabin around 9 p.m., Another said, no, it was a brown Dotson park there. Doug Thomas, who was the sheriff at the time, was unable to determine a motive for the killings, concluding them to be random acts of violence. He told the Sacramento Bee, quote, the strangest thing is there's no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is the toughest to solve. Local law enforcement requested the assistance of federal law enforcement. The Sacramento Department of Justice sent two detectives to help, but instead of homicide detectives, for some reason they sent organized crime detectives. This odd little fact has never really been explained from the research I could find. The FBI was involved in this this investigation for a spell, but decided after a few weeks that the law enforcement officials involved were doing a fine job on their own, and they went on to bigger and better things. Okay, so like I said, we'll circle back to Justin's story now. Initially, this kid said he saw nothing. Then he said, well, I had a dream where I thought I saw the murders. Then he said he may have actually seen something. Police thought Justin knew more than he was saying, and it either blocked out the event from his mind because of the trauma, or he didn't feel comfortable talking about what he had witnessed. However, police had this confidence that he knew something because they noticed there was blood found on the inside doorknob of his room that the boys were staying in without any good reason for why it would be there. Police also believed that if Martin was the one behind these killings, Justin would likely be too scared to say anything against his stepfather, uh, both because there's the familial relationship but also because Marty was crazy, aggressive, and had a horribly short temper. There's also just a bit of common sense that if a murder was this brutal, people sleeping in the house would have heard it, right? But Justin was the only one of the three kids to waver. The other two absolutely said, we just never heard anything. So, like I mentioned, Justin claimed he may have dreamt what he thinks he saw. And the dream he relates is a little heartbreaking to listen to. He said he dreamt he was on a big boat where John and Dana were fighting against a man with long black hair, a mustache, and glasses. The man was using a hammer to fight the two boys. Eventually, the man knocked John overboard then was able to throw Dana off the boat. The boy claimed Dana was very drunk when this happened in his dream. Justin then said he saw Sue asleep on the bow of the ship with a blanket over her. 
When he tried to get Sue's help, he found her dead with a knife sticking out of her chest. He tried to fix the wound with her rag and bring her back to life, but had no luck and ended up throwing his rag into the water. Now, eventually, Justin gave another statement where he said that he heard a noise, woke up, and saw Sue laying on the floor with two men standing over her. John and Dana began to argue with the two men, which led to a fight. Dana tried to run, but was hit in the back of the head with a hammer. Tina then emerged and asked what was going on when the other man sliced her down the middle of her chest with a knife. Justin gave a description of the two men to a sketch artist. Over the following months, Justin kind of oscillated from saying he had dreamt the event and he had witnessed the event. So here's a fun note about Justin's statement. He didn't give it directly. It was obtained via hypnosis, then read back to him while he was strapped to a polygraph machine. Now, indulge me here. I'm going to get on a soapbox. When you have children who are giving a statement in a criminal case, and really any case, but in a criminal case, it means so much more because people's lives are at stake. You have to be so careful with how you handle them. Now, look, Justin was 12 when all this went down, but we don't know the level of maturity, the level of intellectual development or emotional development Justin possessed. Some 12-year-olds can be perfectly good witnesses, but many can't. The problem is kids are inclined to say things they think adults, particularly adults in positions of authority, want to hear. Kids must be interviewed by a highly trained forensic examiner to make sure the story they have to tell isn't being bent or shaped or manipulated by what they think adults want to hear. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen kids' testimony ruined by an adult family member. The mom or the uncle or whoever hears a child say something, gets really upset and demands the child repeat it. Then they start asking suggestive questions in an aggressive way. Of course, not trying to bully the child, but in this panic that the child has witnessed or been a victim of a crime. But the child doesn't take it that way. They just see the adults getting upset, and they don't want to get in trouble. And they have this mindset of, well, dang, I better answer these questions the way you know, my uncle or whoever wants, or he may get mad at me. I could get in trouble. And they know it's bad to lie. So they stick with the story because the adults seem to like that story and want that story, and they must know more because they're not a kid. They're an adult. This, and this isn't me offering some colored opinion as a former defense attorney who thinks, you know, the whole system's out to prosecute everybody. Um, I was actually a certified guardian ad litem for a spell, and guardian ad litems, or GALs, are attorneys who have been trained to represent children in litigation and make decisions for them based on their best interests. Because, you know, a kid can't, a six-year-old can't walk into a courtroom and make an intelligent decision about what they want. And so that's the whole purpose of having GALs. And part of the training we received, and it was not, you know, you show up for a, an hour-long computer seminar. I mean, this was pretty involved and pretty intense training. Um, Part of this training was really focused on, as a GAL, 
if you hear a child start talking about something sinister going on in their life, you don't question them about it. At that point, you call DHR or another governmental organization and get a trained forensic investigator to come in and ask those questions. So, having said that, here we have Justin under hypnosis telling a story, then being fed that story back to him by police officers while attached to a polygraph machine and asked if he told the truth under hypnosis. I mean, my God. This poor kid had to be terrified, particularly if his stepfather really was involved in these murders. I mean, just the entire way Justin was handled in this case infuriates me, in case you can't tell. This is not how you treat children, okay? You don't just say, well, you said this under hypnosis. Is it true? Kid doesn't know whether or not hypnosis is good or not. Don't put him in that position. I That, that just... Mm. I'm fired up. Fired up. Okay, so we've been talking for, what, 20 minutes now? And we haven't even talked about Tina. That's how messy this case is. When the police finally realized Tina was missing and it wasn't just a figment of her 14-year-old sister's imagination, they put together a search. And to their credit, they did a very organized search. They did a grid pattern search for a five-mile radius surrounding the cabin with police canines. But they had no luck. And literally, that is all we know about Tina's story until 1984. In 1984, a cranium and part of a mandible were found in the neighboring Butte County. While researching this find... Apparently, an anonymous tip to the Butte County Sheriff's Office suggested that the remains may belong to Tina Sharp. Around this same time, Sheriff Thomas resigned and took a job at the Sacramento Department of Justice's office. While the Butte County Sheriff alerted the Plumas County Sheriff's Office, which is Sheriff Thomas's office, about this discovery, Nothing was ever done with it. This tape sat in an envelope in the bottom of a box until 2013 before somebody listened to it. And here's an extra bit of weird. The call was made exactly on the three-year anniversary of these murders. Okay, so yes, I did say 2013. It sat in a box and nobody did anything with it and not just the tape, Tina's remains set in a box until 2013. Other evidence that was collected with the remains set in a box until 2013. These other evidence include a nylon jacket, a blanket, and an empty medical tape dispenser. Guess what the boys were tied up with? Wire and medical tape. I, I just... Mm. So, in 2013, a Butte County detective stumbled upon the box and alerted the Plumas County Sheriff's Office to the find for a second time, at which point they actually kind of looked at it. Thank God. Now, Tina's remains are not the only evidence that was ignored. 
Like I mentioned, police apparently were not aware that Marilyn left Martin the day after the murders. Pretty big, pretty big lead there in my mind. So let's make it worse, because that's what we do here. Martin sent her a letter begging for her to come back to him. And in part, he said, and I'm going to quote here, I've paid the price for your love. And now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? So he paid with four souls and four people died at cabin 28. Easily case closed here, right? Perfect confession? Nope. Police did not consider this letter to be a confession and never, ever questioned Martin about it. When interviewed for a documentary on this case, Sheriff Thomas said that, well, once Martin passed the polygraph test, we just eliminated him as a suspect. In May of 1981, a month after these murders took place, a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration met with Martin, who allegedly said, and I'm quoting again, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. The counselor immediately reported this to the police. Again, case closed, right? Nah, not at all. This confession was dismissed by detectives as hearsay. I hate it when stupid people pretend like they know the law, and that's what we have here. Hearsay has nothing to do with an investigation. Hearsay is an objection you make in court to try to stop somebody from making a statement. It's used, This evidence is usable in so many other ways, including in a preliminary hearing, a search warrant, an arrest warrant. They could have used this in a variety of ways, and they didn't do it. And they didn't bother to call any attorneys. The detectives just played a lawyer and said, nope, that's hearsay. We can't do nothing with that. Sheila Sharp told CBS Sacramento in 2016 that she had received information indicating that Martin and Bo were told to get out of town shortly after the murders. The documentary I mentioned earlier, which I never found a name for, mentions that Sheriff Thomas and Martin were known to be really good friends, though Mary Lynn, Martin's ex, said she wasn't aware of Martin being friends with the sheriff at all. Mary Lynn also reported to the police that Martin and Bo were burning something in the fireplace around 2 a.m. on the day of the murders. Do you think police went and checked the ashes? I'm not even going to answer that, because you know the answer. The neighbor, James Seabolt, who claims to have rescued the boys through the bedroom window, he didn't do that. James went into the cabin and traipsed all over the crime scene, getting the boys out. And we don't know to what level of contamination he introduced into the crime scene. Police did find a fingerprint of an unidentified person, but we don't know who. They never really did anything with it. There was blood everywhere, as I previously mentioned. And, and let me explain. Everywhere means every bedroom they found blood. There was blood in the kitchen. There was blood pooling on the couch. 
There was blood ruining the curtains. The bodies had been moved and positioned in the way that they were found, and police can offer no explanation as to why. Here's a really fun one. The original case log history, okay? This is like the Bible for the investigation. It details who did what on what date. It's missing. Nobody can find it today. Boxes of physical evidence were stored in the sheriff's storage area, not as they should be, where they're all grouped together. No, they were haphazardly and randomly placed throughout this giant building, making it extremely difficult for subsequent investigators to find all the boxes and all the evidence that had been collected. And here's this fun fact. Some evidence, the spoilable evidence, was put in a freezer to preserve it. And guess what happened? It just so happened that all the freezers they have access to, that one accidentally got unplugged. This investigation screams sabotage to me and infuriates me to no end. It's so aggravating to know that this could have been solved if we just had competent law enforcement. Now I can bring you some good news. We have some competent law enforcement on the case now. Plumas County obviously has a new sheriff who wants to solve this case. He has hired a special investigator to work only on this case. The investigator, Mike Gamberg, and the new sheriff, Greg Hayward, have both publicly expressed confusion over how the initial investigation was handled suggested there may have been some incompetence, and investigator Gamberg has even gone so far as to say that it was a cover-up. Now, I found a clip from Sacramento CBS who did a report on the story in 2006. Like I said, Sheila Sharp made a statement to them, and this is that interview. So what you're going to hear here is lots of the reporter talking, who I think you'll be able to identify from his polished uh, uh, delivery. The first voice you'll hear will be Sheriff Hagwood, then the reporter speaking to investigator Gamberg, and then finally we get to hear from Sheila Sharp. It's just over a minute long. I'm going to play that for you right now. It's a little suspicious. It's a little troubling. The sheriff says it's not the only troubling aspect of this case. I am not by nature a conspiracy theorist. But there are facts and circumstances. The number and the nature of which um, I can't ignore anymore. What was ignored, an alleged admission of guilt by one of the prime suspects. Marty actually confessed, right? Yes. But what happened to that confession? Somehow uh, it was uh, excluded. Uh, they uh, covered it up, is the way it sounds. The people involved in this crime knew some influential people, apparently. That's my sense, yes. It's a belief long shared by the victim's family. I mean, I was told the suspects were told to get out of town. So to me, that means it was covered up. And let me throw more fire 
on everybody's rage out there. Investigator Gamberg, he was actually a homicide detective with the Plumas County Sheriff's Department from 1974 to 1994, and he worked on every single homicide case that occurred in the county during that time except for one, the murders at Cabin 28, which he was expressly forbidden from being involved in by his superiors, with no explanation, naturally. Now, recently, DNA tests were done on the tape used to bind the three victims together. And this analysis has found a third party's DNA, which apparently matches the DNA of a person of interest in this case, according to investigator Gamberg. He is currently operating with the belief that there are six living suspects who either played a direct role or a supporting role in the death of these four people. Uh, Just so you know, both Martin and Bo are deceased and have been since, I believe Martin died in 1998 and Bo died in 2000. So now's the part where we're supposed to do analysis and all I want to do is rage. (laughs) Um, I mean, wow, what a mess of a case. Um... Here's the best I can piece something together. There was some sort of triangle between Martin, Sue, and Mary Lynn. I mean, you have Sue telling Mary Lynn she just needs to leave Martin. But Martin is also coming to see Sue to ask her for drinks. Now, naturally, Martin could have been coming to see Sue to ask her out to get her alone to kill her. So the invitation might not have been romantic in nature. And I would say it, if I had to put money down, I would say it's not romantic in nature. But we've got the report of Sue getting a screaming fight with some unidentified man a few weeks before the murder. And we don't know who that man is. These three have a very strong connection to each other, either positively or negatively. Um, and I, I, I mean, to me, it's very foreseeable. I don't think it takes a lot of leaping to conclusions to say Martin got tired of Maryland getting counseled by Sue when the advice she's being fed is to leave Martin. And then you've got your mob enforcer buddy sleeping in the guest room. Probably makes it a little easier for you to think, well, we need to murder this woman. Now, I don't know. I don't hang out with my mafia connections very often. So... Maybe think the dynamic was a little different than I'm thinking. And like I said, there's also just the chance that Sue is seeing Martin and expressed some guilt over doing this while talking to Mary Lynn and tried to cut things off. And that was the motive for killing her. Plus, let's remember the sheer brutality of these murders. I mean, this was not a contract killing that Bo would have been used to. This was a personal attack. I mean, just think, how hard would you have to stab somebody with a steak knife to bend the blade? And poor Dana, who really has no connection to any of this that I can tell, was beaten to heck and back before being manually strangled to death. And yet I'm struck with this oddity of Sue being shown compassion 
after her death. She's naked, at least from the waist down. She may have been totally naked. Again, reports aren't consistent. And somebody covers her with a blanket. Now, it's not uncommon when you hear stories of a husband murdering a wife that the body is covered with a blanket. That Some people think it's a, it's a way to leave the victim with some dignity before the police just stumble into it. So is that what happened here? I mean, did Martin really have feelings for Susan? Or is this just some big old coincidence I'm harping on? I just really find that point interesting. It certainly doesn't explain why the boys had to die, too. Uh, Maybe Martin showed up and was just seeking to intimidate Sue, and things got out of hand when John and Dana intervened. We've got an unclear timeline, but... It seems like John and Dana came home no later than one. Bo and Martin were at their house no later than two, or no, at least by two. Um, maybe Martin and Bo were there, were trying to intimidate Sue into, you know, stop telling my wife to leave me, which makes sense. And. They're drunk. Marty's got a bad temper. The two boys come in. What are you doing to my mom? Um, You know, if Justin's statement is to believe, they could have pushed Sue down and were yelling at her. You know, John, Dana come in, see what's happening, and start a fight. Dana may have had to be clocked in the head to calm him down. Maybe once that happened, both boys kind of, submitted i i would expect that a mob enforcer would be able to intimidate two teenage boys into submission and then they were able to tie him up and well in the mob's world you can't leave witnesses i also firmly believe that martin and Bo were given a chance to run i'm right there with sheila sharp on this there was some sort of relationship between martin and the sheriff even if it's not a direct relationship even if they weren't buddies But something made the sheriff not want to solve this case. Why prevent a homicide detective from investigating a homicide? Why refuse to document so many pieces of evidence? Why ignore two confessions clearly pointing to Martin killing this family? There's just no good answer to these questions at least that i can come up with and when you don't have a good answer that leads us to infer some pretty bad ones doesn't it and i don't i don't see any other avenues worth exploring beyond this i don't know who the additional suspects could be we don't have evidence on that thank goodness we've got a sheriff and a special investigator that are working on this case and trying to solve it And I pray that we see some sort of closure on this case in the future. Um, I have no doubt we will learn about lots of other little wrinkles. But I think we understand the bulk of what happened in Cabin 28 that night. So as you can no doubt tell, I hate this case. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It should have been solved back in 1981. This poor woman and her three kids were slaughtered. Their surviving kids were thrown into the foster system. 
And it's all because someone didn't want this case solved. I mean, this is investigatory injustice at its finest. So thank you again, Misty, for raising my blood pressure. Uh, as always, if y'all want cases on the docket that you want to be heard, give me a shout and I will accommodate you as best as I can. All right, let's do our call to action stuff. Subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review, a nice review. And throw us a bunch of stars, please. Join us at our private Facebook group. I've said this time and time again, but do it. You'll want to be a member before October. We're not hard to find. Facebook.com slash Hidden. That will get you to our page, and you can find the link to the group from there. Follow us on Instagram. We post a bunch of nonsense on there that folks seem to enjoy. And if you refuse to do anything else to help us, at least have the decency to share us with your buddies, your family, or your coworkers. All right, time for the palate cleanser. Easily many people's favorite part of the show. What does a tree use for luggage? Why, it's trunk, of course. I think Eli gave us an easy one there. Maybe it, maybe it's because of how worked up I am about this case. He just didn't want us to give us, didn't want to give us a thinker, you know. Okay, well, that's gonna wrap up this episode. Again, I love you guys. I want you all to stay safe. Stay safe from COVID. Uh, we've actually had several distant family members die from it in the past few weeks. It's just amazing this disease how unpredictable it is. Also, please stay safe just from the general strife in our world and in our lives these days. I don't know what's going on out there, but if we could just, let's just treat our neighbors as human. Let's love them and be cool to them. You can't go wrong with love. And you know what? Things will be better if we do that. And I I just have to say one last thing based on the events that happened over the weekend. This is gonna be my sign off Wakanda forever alright guys Brad out thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden make sure to rate subscribe and share questions email us at info at kmhpodcast.com